pretty amazing that uh, Jesus came down into this world, isn't it? When we think about the stuff going on. And uh, and so today we're going to continue to look at the, the story of Christmas through the eyes of the angels. And while we're doing that, um, I'm going to pass around this clipboard. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory, but uh, we have a Christmas party Saturday uh, that we hope you will come to because we do want to celebrate uh, what Jesus did for us by coming to this earth and and sometimes it's easy to forget that, right? We we celebrate our presence and we celebrate uh, all of the, our family and the food that we eat and all of that stuff. And, and we enjoy all that, but, but it's important for us to remember uh, that it's Jesus that we celebrate Christmas for. And what we're doing through December is we are looking at Christmas, the story of Jesus' birth, through the eyes of the angels. Uh, we are looking at Christmas according to the angels. And what we see in the stories of the angels that surround Jesus' birth are, are, are great words that teach us deep theological truths about what the birth of Jesus meant to us. And as we look at the sadness of, of life today, as we've kind of uh, thought about, you know, human sex trafficking and and the passing of Cecil, things that, that hurt to, to think about and, and look at and, uh, and even to know exist. I think that what we'll see through the angels in Luke 1, uh, 26 through 38, uh, really speaks into that in our lives. It really brings hope and it brings encouragement and it brings strength so that we can, I, I hope, uh, at least a little bit celebrate Christmas for its real reason uh, this year. So if you open your Bible with me, I just want to read this whole passage. Uh, before I read it, uh, I want you to put yourself in the in the mindset of Theophilus. The book of Luke is written to a guy named Theophilus. Uh, I think it's the only book written, uh, one of two books written to a specific person. And uh, Luke is writing to Theophilus to say, "Hey, you need to you need to think about this Jesus guy. He's a a powerful figure. He's the Jewish Messiah. I want you to give your life to him." And Jew, uh, Luke is is telling this story, and and that's really what the whole book of Luke is about Jesus. But he begins with this story about John the Baptist, as we know him, and. He tells the birth story of John the Baptist. And it's this amazing story. And uh, just to kind of catch you up, I won't read it all to you. But, but uh, his dad, Zechariah, is in the temple. And he's an old guy. And his wife is old. And they don't have any children. And doesn't look like they're going to ever have children because they're past uh, the age. She's past the age of childbearing. And, and so he's in the temple. And he's, he is chosen to be there so that he can offer the sacrifices to God on behalf of all the people. And an angel, Gabriel, shows up to Zachariah and says, hey, you're going to have uh, a child and you are to call him John. And he's going to be uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and he is going to proclaim the coming one, the Messiah, and usher in this new age. And Zachariah says, well, that's impossible. And, and he's struck mute and he can't talk. And uh, and and then they have the baby, and, and Zachariah says, hey, his name is John. So it's like this amazing story. I mean, this old couple having a baby way past uh, the age that they're supposed to be able to have a baby and an angel. And, and so if you're, if you're at Theophilus and you open up and you get this letter from Luke, it's a pretty long letter for a handwritten letter, and you open with that story, you're thinking, man, this is, this is pretty cool, like... John the Baptist is an awesome guy, and, and Luke is going to tell me all about him in this giant book that he wrote to me, right? And so you're already really impressed. And then you come to Luke 1, 26 through 38, and, and Luke tells a more impressive story. And, and he really paints Jesus as 
greater than John the Baptist. And I think that's what we're going to see today. So if you'll open up and and just read this uh, or follow along as I read this, that would be great. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be a child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Now, what's striking about this passage of Scripture is that Luke connects it to the story of John the Baptist. And he connects it uh, in, in a couple of different ways. First of all, uh, the, the fact that he relates the story in terms of how far along Elizabeth is in her pregnancy shows us that Luke wants us to see these stories together. If you notice right there at the beginning of verse 26, it says, in the, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And so right away, Luke is saying, look, these stories are intertwined. These stories go together. And I want you to read them as two stories that have become one story. So that's the first way. The the second thing uh, that Luke does is that he uses similar language in the two stories. Throughout the entire story that we just read, you see similar wordings and similar phrases to the story uh, that he has just told about Zechariah and, and Elizabeth and their son named John. For example, when the angel says, hey, you're going to have a child, Zechariah says, how can I be sure of this? And Mary, a little bit different, the, the difference is important, but, but she says, how will this be? And so we see a similar action, a, a reaction between our main characters. And so throughout, Luke uses the same type of language to show that these stories are, are intertwined. We also see that they're both birth stories. So that automatically connects them, right? I mean, we read of John the Baptist um, at conception, and now we're reading of, of Jesus' conception and how they'll be born and how important they'll be to the world. We also see that the angel appears in both stories, and it's the same angel, Gabriel. He shows up both times, and he's called by name. And um, oftentimes, angels aren't called by their names, and so it's striking that, that Luke would say, look, this angel named Gabriel showed up once, and now this angel named Gabriel is showing up again. We also see that the angel has pre-chosen, a God has pre-chosen the name of these children and the angel relates that to their soon-to-be parents. His name will be John is said to Zachariah and his name will be Jesus is said to Mary. And so what Luke does is, is he is he connects these stories through language and through wordings and through relatives being connected because we see at the end of this that Mary is uh, Elizabeth's relative and, and he connects these stories together and, and he wants us to see that. 
But I think that the reason he does this is so that the differences in the story will be striking to us. I think that, that what Luke wants to do is show us the difference between the birth of John and, and all of humanity, really, and the birth of Jesus. And so he puts these stories together in an intertwined kind of connected way so that the differences in the story will stand out to the reader and the reader will have to look at them and go, hey, well, that's different than the story of John and that's different than the story of John. And so I think what Luke wants us to see and what we need to see today is that the differences in these two stories really tell the story that God has intended for us to hear. It really paints the picture of Jesus that the angel wanted to give to Mary so that we can learn about him and about how important his birth was to our earth. Now, it's interesting because I think the switch that we'll see, kind of the differences, uh, come at a, at a time when the world is going from kind of an Old Testament mindset to a New Testament mindset. And John is famous for kind of standing at the crossroads of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is in some ways the last Old Testament prophet who said someday a Messiah will come to the earth. He's the last one to say, hey, this Jesus guy is going to come and he's going to save people. But he's also the first person uh, to proclaim Jesus. He's really the first apostle, if you will, although he's never called that, to say, hey, Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Son of God. And so John and Jesus represent this, this point in history where there's this massive change. And the change comes through the birth of Jesus. And we see in this story and the differences that Luke gives us really why it changed all of history. So the first difference comes right from the very beginning of the passage. It says that Gabriel, the angel, came to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, if you were to go back and look at the story of John, what you see is that Zechariah is in the middle of the temple. He's in the, the Holy of Holies. He's in the inner sanctuary where only one person got to go per year, in the middle of their religious epicenter. And outside of that temple is Jerusalem, which is the nationalistic center of the Israelite people. I really can't paint a great picture for us in our world today, but it would be something like being in the White House while being in um, a, a St. Peter's uh, Cathedral uh, or something. It, that is the only way that we can really think of it because we have nothing like this in our society today. And so John is in the center of the religious and political and national world as he st stands and worships in, excuse me, not John, Zachariah as he's in that temple. Mary is in a town called Nazareth, which is a town in Galilee. It's really striking because Nazareth is, is a very uh, unrespected town. It's a place that nobody cares about. It's like, uh, it's like uh, Newburgh. Uh, it's just out there and, and nobody really cares about what's going on in Newburgh. Sorry, guys. Uh, and and so, uh, so we see this striking parallel between Jerusalem and the temple to Nazareth in Galilee. If you were to go further in the New Testament... John 1, 45 and 46, you see just how little people thought of Nazareth. It says this there. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now here's his response, verse 46 there. Nazareth, 
Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked, right? Uh, and, and so it's a totally disrespected town. And then you see that Galilee, the, the region that Nazareth was in, kind of like a state for us today, uh, was also disrespected. John 7:41. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? And so we see this striking difference between Jerusalem and the temple to, to Nazareth in, a, in the region of Galilee. And I think what Luke wants us to see is that Jesus isn't coming for the religiously great. Jesus isn't coming for the people who have it all put together. Jesus isn't coming to the religious epicenter of the universe. Jesus is coming to the world to be the Savior of the world. I think that sometimes people, and I know sometimes people look and they say, well, how could God love me? How could uh, God have come to the earth for somebody like me and cared about somebody like me? I, I'm either a nobody or I'm too sinful or I've done too many bad things and, and God would not have cared about me. But I think that in coming to Nazareth, this Messiah, we see a kind of a switch. For the Israelites, it was a big switch from from God caring about the religious elitists. That's what I think they believed. That's what the Pharisees taught, in fact. To God caring about every single person, no matter where they are on the earth, even if they're in a little town called Nazareth that nobody cares about and nobody likes. And so we see in Jesus, from Jesus to John, a switch. And it's really a switch in world history uh, where God is now saying, look, I am not just focused on you people in Jerusalem, you Israelite people, I am focused on bringing all people, no matter where they are, no matter who they are, no matter what they have done, into a relationship with me. And we see that through this difference in, in towns. The second difference that we see is the greatness uh, of Jesus. In verse 32 it says, He will be great. Now, if you were to go back to verse 15, you see something similar said of John the Baptist. It says in verse 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And so we see this difference between John the Baptist and Jesus, where John is is considered great, but it's in the sight of the Lord. It has a qualifying statement after it. Whereas Jesus is just flat out great. His very nature, his very being, uh, who he is, is fantastically great. And so Gabriel looks at Mary and and he says, look, this Jesus person, this is the greatest thing ever to come on the planet. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is greater than anything. And Luke is trying to show Theophilus, hey, I just told you that fantastic story. I just painted this great picture of this guy named John and you're probably sitting there with your mouth open. I can't believe it. An angel talked to a human and, and this woman's having a, a baby in her old age and this guy couldn't talk anymore. What a great story. And now Luke says, hey, the greater person here, the greater story is the story of Jesus. Now, we see throughout this this theme kind of come up over and over. For example, Luke mentions three times the virgin birth. And last week, if you were here, we talked about how Matthew uses the virgin birth, birth as, as proof that Jesus really was the Messiah. But Luke uses it in a different way. Luke uses it to say, hey, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is great. Look, his mother was born, was a virgin and he has been born of a virgin. Whereas you look at John the Baptist and you say, hey, what a great story. He was born to a woman who is thought to be barren and is very old and just doesn't seem like she can have a child. What could top that? And if you're Theophilus, you're probably thinking, 
Not much, right? I mean, uh, that's pretty miraculous right there. I mean, I can't imagine my grandma having a baby. Uh, that would be miraculous, right? Uh, and, and Theophilus is like, this is amazing. And then Luke says, hey, I can top it. Because in the person of Jesus, it's not an old woman. It's a woman who has never had sex with a man. It's a virgin. And, and, and she is going to conceive to Jesus, who is the greater of these two characters. He is great in his very nature and his very being. He continues this theme, and he, he continues to really show us uh, the greatness of God. He says, he will be call, or of Jesus, he says in verse 32, he will be called the Son of the Most High. John, in verse 76, as Zechariah is praying and thanking God for what he has given him and his son, in verse 76, he calls his son a prophet of the Most High. And so Luke, again, is showing Jesus to be greater than John. He's saying, look, John is a great prophet. He's a prophet of God, but he is not, like Jesus, the very Son of God. This is emphasized as you look in the story of Luke. Uh, he says he's Son of the Most High, and he calls him Son of God, and, and he shows that this, this conception, this virgin birth, makes Jesus quite literally the Son of God. He says to Mary, when Mary says, Hey, how's this going to happen? Most logical question in all of Scripture, by the way. Uh, this angel says, hey, you're going to have a baby. And Mary, who is a virgin, says, how is that going to happen, right? I mean, that's what I would have said if I were her. How, how is that possible? And the angel says, hey, the power of the Most High is going to come upon you and will overshadow you. And, and we don't know exactly what we, that looks like, but what the angel is saying to Mary is, hey, look, God is going to make this baby inside of you. And so uh, what Luke is saying to, to Mary, uh, to Theophilus, and the angel is saying to Mary is, hey, look, the greatness of this birth will be far greater than anything that we have ever seen before because your son is going to be born of a virgin. Not just an old woman. Uh, he's going to be the literal son of God because God is going to make him inside of the womb of Mary. And that makes Jesus great in its own goes on and says that uh, Jesus will, will be the king, right? And, and we don't see that uh, in the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is there to usher in the king. Uh, but, but here it says, look, Jesus is going to be a king in the line of David. Now, in order to fully understand this, you have to go back to 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16. We kind of talked about Jesus being in the, in the line of David last week, uh, but here Luke seems to put it kind of at the heart of what he's saying. Jesus is going to be a king in the line of David. This was something that the Jewish people had looked forward to forever. They were looking forward to the day when the Messiah, who was a, a, in the lineage of David, would come upon the earth and would set their people free from oppression. And it goes back to 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16. Uh, let me flip there. Let me read it to you. This is the promise made specifically to David. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. 
The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and I will establish this kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And so we see this promise. And this promise is twofold, because throughout the history of the Israelite people, you continue to see uh, kings rise up in the lineage of David. I am currently, in my own Bible reading, uh, reading Second Kings and Second Chronicles, kind of at the same time. And you see throughout it these kings who, who are wretched sinners. They're horrible people. And they sin. And then God says, Hey, I want to, to destroy all of their offspring. But because of my promise to David, I'm going to keep somebody in the king position in his lineage. And so we see throughout this promise, God punishes the ones who are wicked and He raises up the ones who are not to continue that lineage. But every Israelite person knew that someday a king would sit on that throne who would set things right forevermore. And when Luke talks to us and he says, hey, he is going to be a king in the line of David and his kingdom will last forever. What he is saying is he is the one who has been promised ever since 2 Samuel 7 to come to this earth and to set things right for humanity and for the Israelite people. Now, what's really fascinating is that the Jewish people at that time, at the time of Jesus, believed that it would be a short term kingdom. That a king would come and he would set things right and then he would die just like the rest of the kings in the line of David. But here the angel says something striking to Mary and she may be the first Jewish person of her time to understand the greatness of Jesus and what this kingly position means because he says to Mary, he says his kingdom will last forever. And we know that that has already taken place, right? Because Jesus' kingdom is still going on in our hearts today. It is still lasting. And we know that when Jesus comes back and he sets up his throne on this earth again, that it will last forever in even a greater form. And so the angel looks at Mary and says, Look, your son is great. It doesn't need a qualifier, but look at all the things that make him great. He isn't just filled with the Holy Spirit. He is of the Holy Spirit. He isn't just somebody who is a prophet of God. He is the Son of God. He isn't just a, a guy who will usher in the kingdom of God. He is the King who will sit on the throne forevermore. Jesus is great. And so we see this greatness. We see this greatness being painted in every way that this angel can paint it. And Mary, I'm sure, was blown away at what this angel was saying to her. And as we look at this story, it's easy to think, hey, well, I know the rest of it and I know kind of everything that happens. But I think that as Luke writes, he reveals things to Theophilus slowly. If you're Theophilus right now, the reader of this book, all that you really know is this guy named John the Baptist is coming and he's pretty great. It's pretty special because his birth was amazing and he's going to usher in a kingdom. And you also know that there's this greater character named Jesus whose birth was even more fantastic than that of John the Baptist and who is going to be the king of the earth. And so I want you just for a second to think about this through the eyes of Theophilus. When we celebrate Christmas and the birth of Jesus, we celebrate the birth of the greatest 
person that has ever been on this earth. The greatest person that we can ever possibly think of. We celebrate it when we celebrate the Christmas story. It's a pretty neat deal. It's a pretty cool deal. And, and, and it would be easy for us. We, all, we want to skip ahead. And I want to skip ahead. You know that he's going to die and he's going to save us from our sins. But what makes that death so great and what makes that salvation so complete is how great Jesus was from the very moment that he was conceived in his mother being born of God, a, a son of God who was greater than any human who had ever come to walk on this earth. Now, in the midst of this greatness talk, Luke introduces one more theme. And this theme is the grace of God. In verse 35, it says that Jesus will be the Holy One. When we think of holy, we often think of moral purity, right? And the Bible does use it of moral purity, that word. But it also uses it as set apart for a specific task. And that's what this angel has in mind. He's saying, Jesus is going to be set apart for a specific task. And throughout this passage, while it's hidden underneath the talk of Jesus' greatness, we begin to see what this task will bring about for humanity. And it can be summed up in one word, and that word is grace. Even in the birth story, we see the grace of Jesus on this earth. First of all, he comes to Nazareth, right? And we've already talked about that. It's a town that nobody cared of, and it shows that Jesus cared about all people and all places and all, all matter of things. But also in the person of Mary, Luke paints for us a wonderful picture of grace. In this story, Mary is, is given no, uh, no really tangible, exceptional qualities. Mary is not painted as, as somebody with a halo over her head. In fact, she's painted uh, as, as just a normal person. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of this. First of all, uh, we know that she's young. She's a virgin. And so in that society, the society in which Mary lived, uh, just her youngness alone would have caused her to be lower in their world. Second of all, uh, she's a woman. And the reason that commentators think she was scared when the angel talked to her is because she was a woman. First of all, it would have been weird for a man to talk to her, but for an angel to talk to her, she's going, what did I do? What is bringing me this visit right now? And he reassures her, you have found favor in the eyes of God. She is from Nazareth, and so she's from a place that, that nobody likes and nobody respects, and we see how they already think of, of people from Nazareth when we read those passages in John. Luke doesn't introduce her family line until the very end, and for the Jewish people, family lines were everything. It was like, who was your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather? And if you gave the right answer, then, oh, yeah, you're pretty awesome. If you didn't, then it was kind of like, well... I don't know if we can be friends. And so they had really, a, in their own way, a kind of caste system because that's how they viewed people, who was in their lineage. And we don't even find out who was in Mary's lineage until the very end of this passage when it says, hey, she was a cousin of Elizabeth. And in that, it reveals that, that she very well may not have been in the line of David, but in fact, she was in the, the line of the Levites or the Aaronites, the priestly line, because that is who Zechariah was in the line with. And so he doesn't put her in a kingly line. And so throughout this passage, Luke is very careful to say to us, hey, this isn't because of the special character of Mary. And when we read verse 28 and it says, The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And we read in verse 30, the angel says, 
to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. Both of those passages allude to the grace of God. And so we see in the very person of Mary, God saying, hey, this isn't about your qualities. This is about my qualities. This is about my grace coming upon you. And so even in the birth story, even in the conception story of Jesus, we see the grace of God shining forth. Now what's very important for us to notice is that Mary, while she's not painted as, as more special than any other person on earth, she does have one distinguishing quality that sets her apart and, and makes her stand out. If you read down to the very end of this passage, verse 38, this is Mary's response. And don't, don't not be impressed by this. She says... I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Mary's simple obedience and lack of regard for what is going to happen to her is astonishing in this passage of Scripture. She looks at this angel. She says, hey, whatever, if that's what God wants. Now, in our society, no big deal, right? We look around and, we, and there's lots of uh, teenage pregnancies and, and we, we accept those people. But in her society, she was going to be divorced by her husband. She was going to be publicly scorned. She was going to be known forevermore as an adulterous woman. And that's how people would have viewed her. And she looks at all this and without even thinking, unhesitatingly, she says, Hey, if that's what God wants... And this is the truth about the gospel story and, and the story of Jesus, I think. None of us are exceptional, like Mary. We're people. We're normal. Jesus is great. Luke has made that clear. We're not great. We're not even as great as John the Baptist, really. Uh, we're just these normal people. And Jesus shows us that he is offering us grace. And the only thing that can ever make us exceptional is if we choose to accept that grace and follow the Lord with obedience, simple obedience. We make the Christian, the Christian life very complicated sometimes, but in Mary we see the perfect picture of all that we need to be. People who say, Jesus, I recognize your grace, and so I want to follow you uh, unhesitatingly with my whole life. I want to give it back to you. When we look at the life of Cecil, and you think about Cecil, and if you go home and read that story, what you see in Cecil is not a really complicated person. He was a southerner, first of all, so he couldn't have been that complicated. And, uh, and so uh, I've taken shots at Newburgh in the south all in one sermon. Um, he, he was a southerner and very simple guy. And when you read, go home and read that story about Cecil and his ministry, and you see kind of this, this theme that carried on throughout his entire ministry. It was... I'm going to be obedient to God, and then God's going to ask me to do something else, and I'm going to be obedient again. And he even says it in there. He said, I didn't really want to leave that church. It was a church in Washington, but it was just right, and that's what I needed to do. That's what God wanted for me. And so we went up, and we, we helped another church. And in that simple obedience, uh, we see a life, as, as Cecil did ministry for 50 years, and, and he touched many of us in this room. We see really uh, something special. And in Mary, when we look back on her, we don't need to see what, what many people would have us see, where Mary has a halo around her head, or uh, where Mary was, was perfect, or, or anything like that. What we need to see in Mary is that her simple obedience was beautiful, and it should be modeled in our lives. This angel comes and says, look, Christmas is special because Jesus is great. 
Jesus is awesome. Jesus is far beyond anything the world has ever known. And He's going to be King forevermore. That's what makes Christmas special. And your response to it needs to be that of Mary. It needs to be simple obedience. And so today, what I offer you is just that. As we look at the Christmas story and we think about the greatness of Jesus and we think about the grace that Jesus offers us, remember that we are normal people and look at Him and say, I'm going to be reminded at this Christmas season to just simply be obedient. To put aside all the complexities of, of what people have made the Christian faith out to be and say, I'm going to be obedient to what God wants because I recognize how great Jesus is and how much He did for me in His graciousness. Will you pray for me, with me as the pan comes up? Lord, uh, I don't know. You're just great, God. And, uh, and we recognize that in so many ways, Lord. And with all the stuff that goes on around us, Lord, it's, it's really easy to forget your, your utter greatness, God. To, to kind of just think, well, Jesus saved me and someday I'll get to heaven and that's cool. And, and God, while we believe that and we're happy about that, Lord, um, you're just a great God. Uh, and, and God, I pray that that we would reflect on that throughout this holiday season, that, uh, that that when you were born to this planet, it wasn't like any other birth, but it was God's Son in human form coming here to save us and to offer us grace, Lord. And I pray that we would be excited about that, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that out of that we would have a simple obedience to you. Lord, it might be the hardest time of year to be obedient to you because there's so many other things going on around us, Lord, with Christmas and, uh, and family and all of that stuff, God. But, but I pray this year, Lord, we would be drawn back to a simple obedience in you, to you, God, when we think about your greatness and the grace that you offered us by being born to this planet. Lord, we love you and, and we thank you so much for loving us enough to come to this world, God, and... Lord, there's not a person in this room I know, God, who doesn't have hurt and pain this morning in some way, shape, or form, Lord. And, and uh, you came down here. And, Lord, you suffered on a cross. And, and we are so grateful for that, Lord. But, but, Lord, this morning I'm just reminded of how grateful I need to be that you, would, that you would suffer all the normal stuff of life too, God. Despite being so great, despite sitting up there in heaven and ruling down on us, you saw our plot in life that we were destined for eternity in hell. And you came down here and you lived on this sinful, painful planet, God, so that we could one day live in your eternal kingdom. So we thank you, Lord. We recognize your greatness this morning. In your name, amen.